Good morning. For some of you, good afternoon. For most of you, welcome to um, the Hot Politics Lab. I was thinking about how many meetings we've already had, but I, I, I'd lost count. And uh, I guess that's a good thing. Um, welcome, everyone. Uh, it's not much of a meeting today. It's more like a mini conference because we have three different speakers today. And um, uh, we'll, uh, we'll have brief 30-minute presentations uh, for uh, each of the speakers. Um, and so uh, I won't waste a lot of time in, in presenting uh, uh, the huge CVs of our speakers today. Um, we will first uh, have Lara Muradova. Uh, then we will have a, sorry, we will first have Tobias Rohrbach, then Lara, Lara Muradova, and find, finally uh, Dante de la Gata presenting. Let me first um, introduce to you Tobias. He will give a talk of about 10 minutes, after which you can ask questions. Uh, you can write them into the Q&A box that is uh, below in the middle of your screen. And uh, Bert Bakker uh, will uh, read them out. Uh, and then Tobias obviously has the chance to answer them. Uh, let me briefly introduce Tobias to you. He is doing a joint PhD program, uh, partly at the University of Fribourg in Switzerland and partly at the University of Amsterdam at the uh, Department of Political Science. And so he's uh, also a member of the Hot Politics Lab. And uh, uh, today he will uh, present uh, joint work about how uh, differences in, in, in candidate evaluations, uh, difference between men and women, in terms of candidate evaluations. Uh, without further ado, I wanna give you the floor, Tobias. Okay, thank you. So um, you should be able to see my presentation now. And I'm super happy to be able to present you for the first time ever, the preliminary results of our meta-analysis of media-based candidate evaluations. So this was a meta-analysis that I conducted together with Luis Aldering and Daphne van der Pas, who are also present in the audience, I believe. So our meta-analysis really is at the center stage of what Karen Ross calls the game of three sides, with the three sides being the media, gender, and voters. And of course, there are these kind of dyadic interactions between all of these concepts, what the literature of, uh, on gender mediation is, is usually interested in is this more abstract causal chain, uh, which looks something like a vicious cycle where the media misrepresent women and men politicians in the coverage, and voters then kind of misperceive women and men politicians based on these gender differences in the coverage, which then kind of leads to a perpetuation of the status quo because women, um, because of these kind of combined disadvantages are being kept out of elected positions. So our, the goal of our meta-analysis is to kind of bring together all the available evidence on this abstract uh, causal chain and to find out when and how gender differences in media coverage lead to gender differences in voters' evaluations of political candidates. And to do so, we kind of need to bring together different uh, disciplines and various subfields. So the first subfield uh, is kind of the tradition of candidate choice experiments, which investigate the, the impact of gender on voter evaluations. So the, 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 
the main conclusion from, uh, from two recent meta-analysis uh, is that women, well, voters aren't really systematically biased against women candidates under these neutral kind of lab conditions. Uh, a second research field, however, comes to a rather different conclusion. And this field looks at gender differences in actual media content. And here, uh, there is this finding of persisting gender differences in the kind of coverage that women candidates receive. So for example, uh, women candidates tend to receive more coverage of their physical appearance and looks, more coverage of their personality traits as opposed to their political issues, so what they actually stand for as politicians, and they, their personal life tends to receive more attention than that of their male counterparts. And I think this is important because it tells us that we cannot simply take the findings from these candidate choice experiments and transfer them to the context of evaluations of, of media uh, coverage, because media do not present men and women candidates uh, in a neutral way and not in the same way either. So what we need to do is we need to kind of bring these subfields together and reconcile them. And we suggest doing this by kind of uh, reconceptualizing this as uh, media moderated candidate evaluations. So the direct effect of gender on voter evaluations is moderated by different aspects of media coverage, such as personalization coverage or such as trade coverage. Um, with this framework, then we can kind of ask three main questions. So, what overall gender effect is there? Uh, for which evaluation outcomes? And finally, and this is most important for us here today, uh, how are these effects moderated by different aspects of media coverage? So, what we did is conduct a systematic information search kind of based on these standard PRISMA guidelines for meta-analysis uh, where the study selection was guided by four main eligibility criteria. So first, studies had to look at candidates in a political context as opposed to candidates for job interviews or for uh, kidney donations or heart transplants, which there's a lot of research about. Um, second, because we're interested in, in a particular kind of causal inferential framework, we only included uh, experimental designs that had at least two factors. So one factor had to be kind of obviously a gender comparison, and the second factor had to be a what we call a media moderator. So one aspect of media coverage that is manipulated. For example, uh, feminine trade coverage of men and women politicians versus masculine trade coverage. Third, the stimulus material had to reflect what we call a journalistic decision. So the aspect of media coverage that is manipulated had to reflect something that is within journalists' control when they write a newspaper report. This most notably excludes uh, candidate self-presentation strategies as those are beyond journalistic control. And finally, um, the study had to include some kind of candidate evaluation as a dependent variable. 
So we ended up with uh, 43 studies containing roughly 600 evaluations from a bit more than 15,000 participants. And um, well, this is the Prisma flow diagram that I'm just gonna skip. We coded these studies on the level of the publication, on the level of the individual study, and as the smallest unit of coding uh, on the level of the effect size. So we defined an effect size as the single gender comparison per evaluation outcome and experimental condition. So every study yielded several effect sizes for all of uh, its experimental conditions and evaluation outcomes. Since we've literally just now finished the data collection this week, we haven't really been able to run a full comprehensive data analysis. But what we did do is run um, a series of Bayesian random effect models with deeply informative priors for uh, various subgroups. Um, so the subgroups here are the media moderators. And let's jump right to the preliminary results. So this figure here shows all the summary effects for all the media moderators that we found in our study. And what we see here, um, conceptually speaking, are moderation effects. So not main effects of gender and not main effects of media coverage, but kind of the moderation thereof. So positive effects indicate that um, indicate a gender difference in the moderation that is more favorable for women, and negative effects state that uh, a given media moderator hurts women more than men in the, in the evaluation. So what, what, what don't we see? Well, we don't see the, the, the negative effects that we kind of would have expected based on our theory, or based on theory, for uh, trait coverage. Um, actually, covering agentic traits in the media is more beneficial for men candidates than it is for uh, for women candidates than it is for men candidates. Also, we don't find a negative effect of covering women candidates' children or family background either. We do find, however, a series of positive moderation. So. Um, uh, for a series of aspects of media coverage that all have to deal with negativity in some way is associated with positive gender differences. For example, uh, covering the appearance of candidates in a negative way or just uh, negative tonality overall, uh, covering candidates' scandals or their attacking behavior. All these aspects of media coverage lead to uh, gender differences that are positive for female candidates. So, or at least they are hurt by that less severely than men candidates. Um, it can be deceiving to only look at the summary effects at this very aggregated level. So that's why I suggest to kind of dive deeper into some of the actual effect size data um, that we find for some of the effects. So this forest plot shows uh, all the effect sizes for all the negative tone conditions broken down for different outcomes. And we see, we can see that this is kind of uh, very homogeneous and that there's not much going on here, basically. However, this second forest plot uh, is very different. It's, it's much messier and it shows all the effect sizes for, uh, for scandalization coverage, basically. 
And what I did here is group the effect sizes according to evaluation outcomes. And then we can see some kind of pattern. So the top half of the plot shows trade outcomes. So women involved in scandals seem to be punished less severely than men candidates uh, when their personality traits are being evaluated. However, uh, if we look at this mid section, we can see that the exact opposite is true when we look at uh, viability outcomes. So covering candidate scandals uh, leads to kind of more or leads to diminishes the, the evaluation of women candidates viability more than for men. But this kind of viability punishing effect doesn't really extend to vote preference outcomes where uh, we don't really see this negative effect, but much more positive effects, I guess. So this is really, this is interesting. And I think we need to spend a bit more time thinking about this, um, but the, that, that seems to be some kind of pattern. Um, it's, it feels a bit uncomfortable to be talking about um, any conclusions at this stage because it's very preliminary, but we do find some evidence of this media moderation idea. However, the evidence we find doesn't really reflect what we expected to find. We expected to find these uh, negative moderation effects for, for trade coverage, for personalization coverage. But what we ended up finding are kind of positive effects um, for all these negative coverage styles that seem to benefit women more than men. Or at least uh, it's, they, they seem to hurt women less than men. This may ultimately boil down to the fact that we may need to kind of rethink this general narrative of the vicious mediation cycle and make it a tad more positive. But before we can kind of make this very kind of strong statement, I think we have to first, well, we have to continue our analysis and do all the sensitivity analyses. We have to find a way to manage the heterogeneity and the, the scope of our results uh, to kind of filter out the main contribution of our study uh, and kind of gain a bit in, in, in clarity on that. Um, if you have any suggestions or tips, we're more than happy to hear about your thoughts. Thank you. Okay, Tobias, let's run up here. Thanks. Um... Yes, so uh, those of you who are new here, uh, questions can be asked by typing uh, your question in the Q&A uh, box. So not in the chat, in the Q&A box. Um, while you might be writing up your question, I'm gonna ask you a first question, uh, Tobias. Uh, yeah. I think meta-analysis are great and I, I like the transparency uh, that, you're, that you're outlining here. Um, I was wondering how you are your selection criteria. So you follow this sort of common scheme, but what I'm not, what wasn't clear to me is how you're dealing with publication bias here, because uh, I can imagine that the gender experiments that don't work, that they end up in the file drawer. And so are we now looking at the effects of the, the, the biased literature or are we, uh, and, and if you have any sort of a priori specified way of how you deal with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, publication bias is, of course, kind of a, a curse for every meta-analysis. And um, there, 
apart from kind of the statistical ways of assessing the, the possibility of uh, publication bias, what we tried to do when um, kind of when conducting the information search is including um, or specifically trying to include unpublished work by contacting authors, by um, extracting citations wherever possible, by being kind of open for serendipitous tips and, and, and uh, hints by other people. Uh, so we tried to really search as thoroughly as possible and not only focus on kind of the, the standard sources. So we also looked at um, databases for grain literature where unpublished results might be, um, stuff like that. However, um, my kind of general intuition is that many of the studies actually are kind of contradicting one another at some time. So I'm not sure that researchers are kind of incentivized to only publish results of bias against or bias against uh, or for women. It's, I feel like hmm, there, if you run an experimental study in this kind of uh, a field, I think you might want to, well, every result is interesting in that case. If we find no bias, then that's also something that you can frame very nicely, I think. Thanks. Um, yeah, I think, I think the evidence for publication bias in the social sciences is for me quite convincing that, that, that null findings don't get published. Uh, so the work by Annie Franco, for instance, on the DES experiments show that especially experimental evidence with null findings don't get written up. So I'm a bit more skeptical than, than you are, but uh, I think maybe turning to one of our earlier presenters, Amelie Godefroy, who did a meta-analysis and presented it here as maybe also reaching out a little bit more systematically to other people might be a thing you want to do to make sure that you get that publication bias out of, of, of your estimate as best as you can. Um, Fesh, you also had a question, uh, you told me. Yeah, uh, well, that was your question, but luckily I had a second one. Um, I was wondering how well comparable um, female and male political candidates are, because on average we have more male candidates and on average they are more highly placed uh, on, on party lists, for example. So how does that, that play out in your analysis? It doesn't, to be completely frank, in the sense that we, um, we kind of look at the, 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 the Ceteris Paribus logic, where we have a, a woman and a man politician in the experimental kind of material that um, where everything else is held constant, I guess. Um, so there was this, this was actually one argument at the early stage of the kind of, con when we conceived the meta-analysis, whether we want to include observational studies as well, because they are able to deal with this kind of um, slanted distribution of politicians way better. Well, this would have kind of resulted in a very messy sample. So we've decided to focus on the kind of clear-cut experimental designs. Um, but your, your, your input is, is very relevant. I mean, we cannot really account for that with our data. Okay, the next question is from Matthijs Rodan. Uh, fascinating study, Tobias. Um, not sure, not 100% sure if I understood it correctly, but this is what I understood from your conclusion. You expected negative moderation effects of trade coverage in the media on the effect of 
gender on candidate evaluations, but instead you find the opposite. My question, how is that possible? Could you elaborate a little bit more on why this might be the case? Yeah, uh, I think that's from a theoretical point of view, an interesting question. So uh, the, the negative expectation would kind of result from this idea that um, emphasizing kind of communal traits would is what 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 is what was what happens most often. And when you emphasize agentic traits in the media, well, that kind of clashes with gender stereotypical expectations. Um, this is why we expect a negative result. So expecting, finding a positive effect of agentic traits um, may simply mean that emphasizing agentic traits is positive for every politician, because that's kind of what politicians need to have to be successful in the perception of voters. So we just think that this kind of um, overlap between agentic traits and, and politicians required skills is also boosting women's, uh, it allows for women to kind of compensate their gender stereotypical lack of, of agency, I guess. That was a bit convoluted as, a, as an explanation, sorry, but I, I think that's kind of um, what, what's going on here. So this, this, this overlap of agency with the perception of what politicians should do, basically. Okay, next question is from Sander van Oosten. Uh, hi, Tobias. Thank you for doing this important work. I think you do a good job in finding common ground amongst various studies. To me, it makes uh, to me it makes for clarity in a sea of literature, and I would love to cite your work when it's done. You ask how to deal with heterogeneity. Have you considered using, I don't know, I'm not familiar with this term, Sander, Bojat plots to visualize, to visually see what your outliers are, and funnel plots to visualize the extent to which publication bias is likely to be a problem. Yeah, um, definitely the, the the funnel plots. I mean, again, to be fair, I have to say at this point of at this stage, I haven't really had the, the appropriate time to look uh, carefully at all the data. But funnel plots, yeah, um, I, I've plotted one just last night. Um, to kind of get a first idea. And thank you also for the uh, Bloodshot plot suggestion. I um, haven't done that yet, but I will do so. I think what I'm kind of worried about is just the, not so much the heterogeneity in general, but more the kind of how to fit all of this within kind of one narrative, you know? So how do we bring kind of all these very diverse results and sometimes um, at first sight confusing results within one narrative? How do we kind of make an argument that accounts for all of this? Um, so this is kind of the next challenge after assessing the, the heterogeneity in, in statistical terms. Thank you. I, I have another question. Um, I understand that you delve into the moderation immediately, but to me, I think it might might be worth to first figure out what the main effects are, because um, yeah, the, the conditional effect is interesting, but it seems that unless you really have no 
no main effect expectation, but then what's then I would like to know a little bit more specific what then the a priori moderation effect exactly is it in the absence of a, an average main effect. And just in general, I think showing then the main effect or the absence of it might be relevant. Mm -hmm. But I, so the question is why not, why immediately focus on the interaction effect? Yeah, um, the way we kind of conceived the meta-analysis was as being complementary to existing meta-analyses on either the direct effect or of, of, of gender or the kind of the, the, the gender bias within media coverage. So we want to kind of to build the bridge. This is why we directly kind of focus on the moderation aspect of it. But we did, um, we did capture main effects uh, as well. So kind of the control group effects in a way. So we uh, can look at those. And I think you're right, we should to kind of establish the baseline to see what, what's happening. Yes, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, well, if there are no final questions, then I take the freedom to ask a one more last question. Um, Can I ask a question, Bert? Yeah, sure, that's also possible. What about the statistical power of these, these moderation tests that you're using in a meta study? Mm -hmm. um, so we, are you talking about like the, the observed power or the kind of calculated power beforehand? Well, I, I assume most people haven't uh, published uh, uh, their their uh, a priori power calculation, or have actually have never done it. But but you know, I've recently become quite concerned about the the power of of interaction effects. Um, so that's why I'm I'm asking the question. Okay. Um, to be fair, I haven't really given that much thought um, since. I haven't really, well, I did find interaction effects, so I haven't really thought about looking whether the power is adequate or not. Um, that's definitely something I have to do moving on with the analysis and uh, kind of making sure that the analysis is sound. Um, that's definitely something I need to uh, include in, our, in, the, in the analysis. Uh, but I can't really give you a satisfying answer as to it's underpowered, it's overpowered, or it's adequately powered. Sorry. No, that's fine. That's just a, a thing I think you should uh, you should consider. I mean, if results are all over the place, then then one 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 straightforward explanation could be that the in some cases the res the research design wasn't proper. But but that actually would guys would actually call for the importance of the meta analysis, right? If you would then. Bring everything yeah. together because these individuals yeah, yeah. the meta-analysis would eventually weed out these underpowered results because yeah. they also get less weight in the meta-analysis yeah. right but but i but but i can see how this initially would yeah would just add to the to the to the noise that that you're looking at or something yeah. uh, to this messiness yeah yeah thank you all right uh it's uh, 3.30, so I'm going to announce the, the next uh, speaker, Lala Muradova, a PhD researcher at the uh, 
Catholic University of Leuven. Although uh, I've heard you've submitted your uh, uh, your dissertation, so you're in this, or have you defended already too? No. Yeah, no. no. Okay, so you're in this this in between periods, not yet a postdoc, but uh, but still a PhD. Uh, Lala's work is um, is about a, a lot of different things, I should say, but but I guess her her main uh, um, uh, passion is to analyze the role of empathy in uh, interpersonal deliberations. Um, uh, but that's not exactly what you're going to talk about today, right? No. <laughs> okay. So um, I'll just give you the floor and uh, and introduce your topic. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Just going to share um, screen. Right. Thanks a lot for having me. So this is a collaborative project with um, Jane Suter and Eileen Kulotti from Dublin City University. And it's nothing to do with my PhD thesis, just side project. So the onset of uh, COVID-19 health crisis basically brought with itself also um, worrying and alarming um, um, levels of misinformation and disinformation about different aspects of um, the virus. It's of course worrying because um, this kind of misinformation can have um, uh, behavioral consequences, right? For example, some studies started to show that it might have consequences for, you know, it might decrease the willingness to uh, wear masks, for example, or willingness to get a vaccine when the vaccine is available, especially in the context of the US. So that's why it's very important to kind of study uh, what to do so we can uh, correct these mis mis uh, misperceptions among, uh, among the public. So there's this really nice literature um, on factual corrections, um, and they show that it was actually it's possible in not on all cases, but it is possible sometimes to uh, correct uh, people's misperceptions uh, by exposing them to uh, factual information. And most of these studies typically rely on expert sources. Um, um, and what we argue in this paper that COVID is, is kind of a unique cri uh, crisis or health crisis because it's um, overly politicized. And uh, um, that's why because of this nature, uh, maybe perceptions of uh, expert trustworthiness become a bit uh, complicated. So what we do here, we basically bring two literatures uh, together, we combine them, it's misinformation literature, and we bring democratic theory, which might seem a bit strange to you, but I will explain to you why. So it's specifically deliberative democratic theory, which uh, basically puts interpersonal communication at the heart of uh, political decision-making and says that if a group of randomly chosen citizens come together, just lay citizens come together to uh, talk about the issue, they learn from experts, they discuss the issue in depth, and this, the whole process can lead to uh, better and more reflective political judgments and can even uh, correct misperceptions. So one of these type of uh, personal uh, um, communication is structured um, and, and institutions, the so-called, they're called deliberative mini publics. And they're actually now increasingly being used by governments to uh, tackle complex problems such as abortion, um, same-sex marriage, and climate change all around the world. So the empirical studies up to now, though, have looked into how um, kind of small group deliberation can 
correct people's misperceptions. However, these people, so these citizens usually are participating citizens. So the question that we're asking, how about, you know, wide reaching effects? How about those citizens who do not participate in these events? Can these effects be uh, scaled up to them, such so to the wider uh, kind of society? More specifically, we're looking to can Dilbert Mini public, so can um, just reading about it or you know watching a video about it, hearing about it, can correct misperceptions about coronavirus. So what we do here, we fielded two studies. I um, know. Oh so first of all, I'll talk about the arguments. You can ask why, right? So the argument uh, is that uh, we believe. Um, many publics can act as a um, credible source, for, as, a, as a correction source to citizens. So why, you can ask? So we believe there are several kind of pathways, causal mechanisms underlying these, um, these relationships. First of all, um, these citizens are lay citizens. So they're not politicians, they don't have interests, so they can be perceived as nonpartisan and less biased by people, by citizens. And the second is similarity concept. So basically, because seeing these citizens are not experts, not politicians again, um, so they may perceive them as more similar to them. So the argument, like me, uh, these people are like me, so I, I do trust them more. And the third pathway could be that because these deliberative mini publics, basically people spend time together, they learn from experts and from each other, um, they can be perceived as enlightened versions of ourselves. So if we had time, we could learn uh, from experts and from each other, then uh, we could have more competence. So basically these people are perceived to have more um, uh, competence. So to study these questions, we uh, filled the two studies. Um, and the first was conducted in June, 2020, and it was a cross-national survey experiment uh, filled in the US and Ireland with descriptive and representative sample, and we applied between and within subject design. And then we replicated it recently in October 2020 um, with a survey experiment in the US, and uh, more or less the same experimental design with slight changes that I will explain to you later. Okay, so we kind of focused on one specific false claim. It's about the origin of the uh, of, of the virus, that the virus is man-made and were, was released from a lab. Okay, the, and the design more or less in a simplistic term was like this. So they, they took a short uh, pre-experimental survey where we, apart from uh, measuring lots of variances, we also measured their uh, beliefs about false and correct um, uh, um, items, claims about coronavirus, and one of them was this claim that I have showed to you, and then they were randomly assigned to control condition, to citizen correction condition, which I call basically um, I talked about deliberative public, I will explain you more, and then to make it comparable, to see if its effectiveness can be compared to effectiveness of expert correction, we also had some kind of placebo uh, condition, expert correction condition, and then we measured mediators and outcome variables, etc. Okay, so our stimuli was a very short video. And uh, this is for expert condition. So it's a virologist and he debunks basically in 51 seconds, debunks um, the, 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 the false claim. Um, and then we had uh, for, a sit for deliberative mini public, we had this also video uh, about uh, online deliberation because of course we couldn't do it 
you know, about small group offline deliberation because it wouldn't have made sense in the COVID age. So, um, so we had uh, this basically very short information. It's a bit larger than the previous one. Uh, took, sorry, two minutes and ten seconds. And then we also showed the expert video. The same video that we showed, we also show here. So to make it comparable, and we say that they um, heard from experts, they discussed the matter, and then they debunk basically uh, the, the false. Uh, Okay, so this kind of a descriptive uh, stats, uh, it shows by country, um, the, the group of people who are misinformed is quite large actually. So if you see our island, 38% of people are misinformed about the origin of war, at least um, then in June. And in the US, it's more like more than 25%. And in the U.S. case, as, as you would have expected, it's uh, it's uh, it varies by partisanship. So it's more than half of Republicans are misinformed, and uh, and much less for Democrats, etc. So I'm going to go through fast. You can always ask me questions later. Okay. So what we do the the analysis, we proceed to the following way. So first of all, we look at uh, mean uh, raw change, um, so kind of net change, um, so within subject changes. Uh, um, after experimental stimuli, so this is by country and across experimental conditions. So you see that actually taking even the survey itself, control condition, they had uh, changed their um, attitude. So basically positive uh, changes denote um, cor uh, towards correction. So changes happening towards correction uh, of misperceptions and vice versa. However, as you can see here, so X citizens assembly condition basically had the largest um, effect and then expert correction didn't work. So what we do next, you know, to make it more clear, we just recorded the variable change, made it uh, categorical. And um, what you can see here again um, across countries, so green denotes the a group of people, percentage of respondents who uh, shifted their attitudes towards correcting misperceptions and the blue one um you know it's percentage of people who uh actually had so-called backfire effect which um uh, rifle and nine uh, in their seminal study call so they they move towards the opposite side um so you can ask me later questions i'll just go through um uh, quickly uh, so what you can see here that i mean the only effect was a citizen uh, correction effect so a deliberative mini public effect and it's it's substantial statistical significance so it's it's 12% here when compared against control condition, 14% uh, when compared against um, expert condition, and it's comparable to the US, more or less uh, US uh, sample as well. And then in study two, what we had, so we measured, uh, I'll talk about the measurement later, but here what we did, so we thought maybe uh, expert uh, correction didn't have an effect, but citizen correction had, maybe because respondents basically perceived more consensus coming from deliberative mini public um, video. And maybe it wasn't so obvious in the expert correction video. So we just added like several seconds of um, basically showing that there was a scientific um, consensus on the expert video. And you can see that you see both of them, expert correction and uh, citizens assembly or so-called deliberative mini public um, uh, condition, both of them had um, a positive effect on people's tendency to shift their post-experimental views towards the correct side. 
And the same thing here. So you can see even it's the effect is larger. So we did the same recorded variable, and then those group, uh, the, the, those who are um, in the green um, uh, column, uh, they they moved shifted towards the correct side, and the effects are at twenty percent basically, and seem substantively and also statistically significant. But as you can see here, there's no difference between expert correction and Dolbertomini public correction basically. Okay, so what are the main takeaways? That Dolbertomini publics perhaps can act as credible source of correction. Uh, for COVID misperceptions. Um, just bear in mind, it's it's the first study that does it. So of course it's, it's suggestive, so more studies need to be done. Um, findings on the effectiveness of expert corrections, however, mixed. And then what I didn't talk about, we also hypothesized in our pre-registration hypothesized about moderation effects. So I can, if you have questions, I can talk more about it. I have graphs um, and they were also uh, mixed. So thank you very much. We're going to um, conduct another experiment in Ireland. So I would be really happy if you could tell me uh, some parts of the experimental design or not. Um, I, yeah, I don't know, um, convincing. So what kind of things you can do in the future? Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Lala. Uh, interesting work. Thanks for this clear, clear presentation. Um, I have two questions. One, um, if I understand it correctly, you ask within one survey sort of the, the same question about misperceptions twice, right? Yes, so in the first uh, one, we basically mixed it with, um, I think five or six yeah. other claims. Some of them were false, others were about masks and washing hands, etc. And And then, then um, after experiment, we asked uh, about this specific question and about Gates, Bill Gates. Um, yeah, so, so how, so my first question is, like, what do you make of this sort of general change in, in the first experiment from, from between the two questions? Like, is that just random noise or, um, you know, people became for some reason a little bit moved in a certain direction? Why is that within the same survey in a control condition? Um, and so if, if I would have to do it again, I would wonder, like, is there an issue that you ask this in a sh short survey twice? Or should you maybe do some sort of pilot wave one experiment and then a week of nothing and then and then do this experiment with the corrections? Yeah. Uh, and and um, the second issue I a question I would have is is to what extent are you worried that your expert corrections suffer from pretreatment issues? So the extent that people are constantly exposed to experts like uh, on that that tell stuff about the virus. Whether or not it's true or not, that's a different question, but there's constantly corrections on, on, on what is true and false in, in media. It must be in Ireland as well, in, in the US it is for sure. So does that affect your mixed findings on the expert question? Yeah. Okay, that's brilliant questions. Thank you very much. Yeah, the first one, I don't know, I can't really, we can't really, yeah, know is the survey respondent effect, you know, is a demand effect or is it Maybe because they took it and then they just like, while taking the survey, they Googled it or they thought about it more, they reflected about it more. Um, yeah, at this point, I, I, yeah, unfortunately, I cannot know from the data that uh, we have. So in the second, which is connected to the first one, of course, I think you're right. So it would have been well better if there was like wave one and wave two, or perhaps just between subject design. So which, 
basically we, we wouldn't have you know to measure uh, pre-experimental question but even I even think so the effect size then maybe would have been bigger because perhaps there's this consistency current consistency happening so I answered this question this way and I shouldn't you know um, answer it differently even though expert or another condition convinced me so yeah it's a it's a very good idea maybe we'll just conduct between subject design or something or wave one and wave two and just see if, if, if it differs uh, and the third question is also um, very important one um, yeah I don't know how can I how can I know kind of questions that I can ask uh, to see if it's the effect you know what you have been talking about what we asked yes we asked a trust battery which one of them item is to trust in scientists maybe I can do subgroup analysis or um, this wasn't registered though. So it will have to be exploratory analysis just to see if it differs uh, across uh, individuals trust in uh, experts. Um, but can you think of any other way of accounting for it? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not an expert on this, this correction of misinformation literature, but I, I do have a sense that, that maybe mis correction of misperceptions in COVID is a difficult issue to study because what I've seen from these misperception studies, they often, yeah, they are salient topics, but then they bring an expert like, well, you know, actually say this about immigration, but experts say X, Y, Z. And here with COVID, you have this, you cannot turn on the TV or there is somebody from a, from a hospital telling you about how we should perceive the facts. So that, that might affect it. But there are actually a couple of questions. So let's move on to that. Um, wait. Oh, I'll read Sana's question. Matthijs, I'll start with Matthijs' question and then I'll go to Sana's question. Uh, two questions. Uh, could you say more about the backlash effect? Did you have any expectations beforehand about these? So that's the first. And the second question is about the moderation effects you mentioned. Have you taken into account variables like trust in science politics? So that's a good connection to what we were just talking about. Have I taken into account what, sorry? Trust in trust. science. Uh, okay, yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, so um, let's have a look at backlash effects. No, we didn't pre-register backlash effects, but um, this has been a poorly uh, sorry, uh, exploratory. Okay, here. So um, yes, we do. So you see the blue ones are backlash effects, both countries, but I find so and the analysis show that they're not statistically significant whether within subject or across um, subjects. Um, but we didn't pre-register it as a hypothesis, but of course would have expected it perhaps um, from seminal study by Nyan and, and Reifer, um, 2010. Um, but yeah, there's no significant effect here. Although you can see it, but it's not systematic basically. Um, and then moderators, um, I'll just show you the, the, okay, so here, what we did for registers is in terms of hypothesis is we thought uh, these effects would differ across individual dispositional open-minded thinking, which you know, we know from the literature and conspiracy thinking or mentality, uh, which we know from uh, literature as well. And in terms of effect of a uh, um, mini public, we also pre-registered interpersonal trust and trust in citizens' assemblies, which is like a deliberative mini public. And um, so I think I 
Uh, so we do have a question, trust in scientists as well. I think I did run some analysis and, and there was nothing, but it's not here. So uh, maybe I should look into that more. Cool, thanks. Um, okay, next question is from uh, Sanne. Uh, Dear Lala, thank you for this uh, presentation of a uniquely topical subject. I've had the privilege of reading an earlier version of your paper and enjoyed reading it very much. I recommend all to read it as well. There was a time in the corona crisis, I believe in April, where the claim that coronavirus was man-made from the lab in Wuhan came from quite credible sources. Later, it was debunked. It might be that some of your resp respondents already had the former or the latter information, or both, since these are experiments. I don't think it will change the outcome, but it might cause more noise. Have you measured what people's ideas were about the topic before as well? That's Thank you very much, Sunny. That's a brilliant question. Um, but yeah, no, the first, so the first study was uh, conducted in June, basically. So before June, we um, wouldn't do any study. Would have been really interesting to have this information. Um, yeah, no, I mean, the next study was in October and it hasn't changed much. So I have descriptives here. Um, study three descriptives with the US only. So you can see that it hasn't dwindled. So it hasn't decreased actually, so between June and October. But I do understand your point um, about you know, April and being more exposed or ex exposed actually to credible sources. And we cannot capture it, unfortunately, with, this, with these studies. Thank you. All right, next question is from, uh, I think Haley. You should know Haley where to post the question in the chat. Uh, um, wait, let me read it. Oh, it's also very long. Uh, hi, Lala. Thank you for pre uh, for presenting. Super interesting. I really enjoyed reading this for the political Hat now. Great to hear more about it now. If I understood correctly, you showed participants in the Citizens Assembly Commission a video of the mini public, where COVID nineteen with COVID nineteen there is a great deal of discussion among occurring online among citizens. And there are many who just observe rather than participate too. Here you give, have you, have, have you given any thought at all about perhaps using a stimuli, stimuli which stimulates deliberative discussions online, in other words, social media comments, sections, et cetera. Do you think you might find similar outcomes in such scenario? Well, that's, that's a very good idea. Maybe for the next experiment, so that just to, to have a look at the method effect, you know, whether just reading about it in the social media has a, as a, as a different or same effect uh, from watching a video about it. It's, it's, it's a very good idea, actually, yeah. I'll take that into account. Cool. All right, uh, next question is from Diamantis Petropoulos Petalas. Uh, hello, Lala. And thank you so much for sharing your research results with us. I wonder if the difference in the number of portraits people that the stimuli had plays in any role in how much weight individuals attribute to opinions of others. In other words, would you expect the effects to, effects to reverse in a group of experts if a group of experts was shown compared to the single expert? Right, okay. Yeah, it could be the case. Well, it could be maybe if it's a group of experts, then the perceived consensus, which from the literature, we know that a more scientific consensus 
increases the efficiency of corrections. And maybe then it could somehow increase the, the effect of expert. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because maybe, it, I mean, it was one of the reasons why we changed slightly second uh, study video. We added these um, this sentence that there was a scientific uh, consensus where, whereas uh, from the first one, you couldn't tell. So yeah, it makes sense what you say. Thank you. Hey, she also had a question. Yeah, maybe more a suggestion. Um, I was thinking um, it would be interesting to see the effect of the uh, deliberative uh, exercise if these people were um, not sharing um, uh, the same sort of content that the expert is saying, but rather the, uh, fake uh, fake news. Ah, oh, okay. So if it okay, so you think if if you trust the citizen assembly, if they share a fake news. Would people believe in that or not? Is that what? Yeah. So if you're interested in the effects of these mini publics, yeah. But now there's a constant between experts and uh, and and the mini public you're showing, and namely the the the, the information, right? And, and I mean, I can see that, that that would be the first step to do. But uh, but would they still believe the mini publics if the mini publics are are are, are sharing nonsense stories? Yeah. Exactly. Well, I think according to the theory, we're saying they would. But mm -hmm. don't have yeah. because that's the thing. So we we say that the, the people use it as a um, what's the word a facilitative trust in the literatures of Warren and Gastel. So shortcuts, you know, the, the way yeah. they use the Elliot shortcut the shortcuts, and then according to the theory, it would make sense. But it would be really interesting what you say. I mean, it would be yeah. good to empirically tested and say. Um, I think it would be a harder test. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. Next question is from Marie Isabel Teuwis. Hi, Lala. You mentioned the causal mechanism leading to opinion change due to citizen deliberation. I didn't catch whether in the citizen assembly condition you found any evidence for one of these three causal pathways, impartiality, similarity, or competence. Yes. So we asked in the second study only, uh, in the first study, no, second study, we asked some questions. So I'm just going to show you one. I didn't have time to do um, those uh, for all. Uh, but this is a similarity perception. So basically, we asked a battery of questions. Do you perceive these uh, people who are in the video um, similar to you, having a similar background to you? And the third, what was the uh, similar experience or something? Um, and then because the control condition, we didn't show anything in no stimuli, I cannot control, like kind of compare it to the control condition. So here you can see that they did perceive, it's a, just a mean, um, um, mean of um, perceived similarity. They did perceive those citizens deliberating more similar to them um, when compared against uh, expert condition. So I don't have, uh, so I haven't done the the causal um, yeah mediating analysis. I'm I'm also yeah because of the whole studies coming up. I'm not very sure if I should do that analysis and, and report it in the in the paper. Uh, but yeah, descriptively, that's what, what I can I can show you. And there was something to do with consensus and then uh, impartiality um, and some other questions, Emo yeah, about emotions as well that I can show you. Um, yeah, so here, basically what I find that um, expert video made them frustrated and alarmed. 
and a bit angry. So if you look into um, here, the Citizens' Assembly video, on the other hand, it kind of increases um, some kind of feelings, like positive feelings. Um, so yeah, we didn't hypothesize about emotional pathways, but this is just a kind of descriptive, which is interesting. We would like to explore it in the future. Why citizen, why citizens make them, you know, um, this kind of video make them more positive and expert video makes them more alarmed um, or frustrated. Thank you. Okay. Um, well, the last uh, two minutes, I, I don't know, I was thinking about you asking, what should we do in a third study? Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking maybe not add too many new things. Like there's already quite a few things happening here in, in, in two experiments and, you know, getting this into, well, unless you're writing, you know, multiple papers, but if it's for one paper, I'm not, I'm not sure if adding a lot of new things is, 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 what you should be doing but that's just i don't know how other people think about this yeah. but i thought that's the last minute i share that thought <laughs> what do you think guys i i fully agree with you are you okay <laughs> <laughs> no i mean it's always tempting of course to uh to add a lot but but i'm assuming your budget is limited so uh yeah, it's my courses, but just not mine, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think what we learn here from the psychologists that come and present here, they they often present a, a series of studies which are very closely aligning to each other. And the political science audience that we're, that we're also, most of us here are partly trained in, they do like this, this new thing, new thing, new thing, which is, yeah. which is different. Yeah, so you would just replicate the same design um, uh, small changes, improvements, but but it's about what's the main message in the end that you wanna that you wanna communicate. And by adding all sorts of new moderators or treatments, you're adding whole new sections to the study. And uh, and I yeah that too. And and I think the the difference between the expert condition and the mini public condition was already very small in study one, yeah. and 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 then you don't find it in study two. Yeah. I'm pretty sure if you do study three, you find it again. But maybe even in the reverse direction, it's just yeah. it's just uh, it's it's just very little difference, mm -hmm. and and you would need a very large sample in order to reliably uh, find a systematic difference. I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I think picking up on that, guys, I think that would be in a first study a well-powered test of the main effect to know if it's if the argument is correct. That's probably what the study needs. The paper needs. Okay, enough lecturing. <laughs> no, no, but I was just being, you know, it's interesting. It's an interesting temptation that we also share here is that yeah. you do new things all the time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's four. So, Lala, I want to thank, thank you. you. Um, uh, like uh, the previous, like Tobias, the previous speaker, you will get this uh, the Hot Politics Lab coffee mug uh, once we're allowed to cross borders again. And, and hand it to you personally. Um, and so, Tobias, this is yours too. And Dante, well, you still need to present, so you might get this one. Hmm? Okay, uh, <clears throat> next and last uh, presentation. Um, quite a special presentation, I must say. Uh, Dante de la Gata uh, will do the presentation. It's a joint project uh that emerged last year uh, uh dante is now i guess a third year uh, bachelor uh 
political science student. Uh, and last year uh, he did project two, a course in the Bachelor of Political Science and uh, under the supervision of Michael Homan. And uh, with his group, they, uh, they did an incredibly interesting experiment. Uh, and and, and uh, Mike and I said, well, let's, uh, let's just throw some money at it and do a second and, and, and later on uh, even a third study, but that, that still needs to be done. So uh, for you, uh, the, the audience now, especially the, uh, the first two studies of this student project evolving into something uh, uh, much more than that. Dante, the floor is yours. Indeed, thank you. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and share my PowerPoints. You guys can all hear me all right, yeah? And see the PowerPoint presentation, great. Um, yeah, so as Gijs uh, said, my name is Dante Delegata, and I'm presenting some research with, well, with the help of Micah and Gijs, and then um, my fellow groupmates, Victor, Izzy, and Liska. Uh, we've been exploring regarding emotion perception in politicians. Um, 2020, of course, has been a year yeah, full of emotions in politics. We've been bombarded with images of politicians uh, delivering remarks regarding the coronavirus crisis. And specifically, we saw this image. We grew really curious about the facial expressions of Dr. Bricks and Dr. Fauci standing behind um, the US President Donald Trump. Uh, this motivated to, us to dig a bit deeper into yeah, which emotions were on display uh, and caused us to ask uh, what, if any, facial expressions, uh, um, facial features, actually, if those played any roles uh, in contemporary power politics. Um, of course, there's been an established uh, an important role of uh, emotions in politics, and um, specifically, it's been shown that certain visual politics play a crucial crucial role. Um, namely, for us, we were most interested in um, the research that has shown uh, the difference between the perceptions of men's and women's displays uh, of emotions and those being perceived as as different. Um, we wanted to know if the difference played out also in power relations. Uh, and we wanted to know if there were certain stereotypes about sex influence um, that influenced those uh, emotional perceptions, those perceptions of emotions. Um, in our research, we are aiming to examine the point of perception specifically, not necessarily the evaluation of emotional displays, but specifically the, the point of perception. Um, and yeah, to clarify here, we, we kind of delineate between general power positions and dominant power positions. I'm gonna bring that up on the slide here. Uh, in general, we see that men are often seen as more angry while women are seen as uh, more happy or smiley. Um, and we also see that facial expressions here tend to overlap, uh, facial features, sorry, tend to overlap with expressions. Um, we wanted to know also, of course, if this is the case in dominant positions, um, and what we see in the literature, at least, is that there's this switch that occurs. There's less anger uh, being perceived in, in men who are holding powers of positions of power as compared to women uh, in power positions. They're often seen uh, as more angry. And we wanted to know if this could be caused by um, sex stereotypes. And um, yeah, I'm gonna explain to you what we did here. So in June, like I said, um, we performed kind of this pilot study for, for our bachelor's program and, and the results can be summarized in the graph here above or on, the, on your screen. Uh, what we did find was that there was an effect which supports the notion that women were perceived as being more angry uh, than their male counterparts in, in positions of power. Um, but this of course was just a kind of a, a preliminary study and we really wanted to see um, if these results would be 
uh, found again. So what we did is we formulated a series of um, hypotheses uh, to test. Uh, our first hypothesis here is that there would be no difference in the anger perception in male versus female politicians with, with neutral expressions. Um, our second hypothesis would be that people perceive more anger in female politicians with a morphed angry expression uh, than a male politician with an angry expression. I'm gonna explain how we uh, developed our design here in a minute. And our third hypothesis um, was an AV hypothesis um, that sought to explore whether or not men or women have a stronger bias in anger perception of female politicians. So the way that we designed this study um, um, initially actually used Qualtrics. Well, we used Qualtrics both times, but we used a survey um, which in our convenience sample, um, or in our pilot study, we performed a convenience sample where we reached 124 participants. We of course um, revised the survey um, uh, to fit into our current and second study where we utilized the Amazon service MTurk uh, to reach around 195 participants. Included in this design, um, there of course were attention checks. We collected some demographic data about age, gender, level of education, and in this survey, participants were asked to rate their emotions using um, a seven point scale. You can see here we used six basic, um, we used actually four basic emotions based on the uh, original six. We, we took out two emotions because in the pilot study we found that they were not um, yeah, often clicked. And of course, participants saw all these um, conditions um, in a randomized order. So from a pool of 42 pictures, um, each participant was shown a subset of both morphed photos and unmorphed photos. Uh, and we used a two by two within subject design uh, with the neutral and manipulated photos to, to create this condition. And I'm gonna show you how we did that next. So using, um, yeah, well, really hundreds of photos of um, uh, MPs and Lords from the United Kingdom. Uh, we selected uh, some neutral faces. And from there, we further refined the pool using a program called Face Reader. Um, this system basically would run the photo through and uh, spit out a score for us. Um, and we would only use those with a neutral score. So from there, we also further selected. We disregarded uh, photos that were, had yeah, obviously weird facial features, uh, for example, an open mouth would not work in the face reader. Um, it wouldn't, wouldn't read it as neutral. And also photos needed to be taken from a straight on angle so that um, both participants would be able to see the emotion clearly and the face reader program. Um, our second step was to manipulate um, some of these photos into an angry expression. And we did this using a program called Psychomorph. And what this did is it would reshape certain facial features so that uh, these these faces would show uh, an angry expression. And, and psychomorph isn't really perfect. So it kind of produces these, these images of people with wonky artifacts as we call them. Um, yeah, you've probably seen that on the uh, social media where, where someone's lip or, or face or something gets, gets a bit wonky. So we, we used Photoshop to actually go through and clean up each of these um, uh, photos uh, to make sure that participants wouldn't know that they've been retouched. And then we did one further round of validation and, and we wanted to make sure that the face reader system would produce uh, an angry score. 
Um, and using this methodology, we were able to narrow down these hundreds of photos into a pool of usable photos, around 42 photos we had. So um, the main results of our second study um, go as follows. So here you can see that um, in our first hypothesis or our first uh, condition, we found that anger is not significant. Um, but there was a difference with happiness and sadness, um, which is somewhat in line with the theory that men are perceived as sad and women are perceived as happy. Um, and this did indeed support our first hypothesis. Our second condition or second set of photos were the angry photos. Um, and here the morphed photos show the same uh, result. There's no difference in anger, but again, there's a difference in disgust and sadness. And despite the manipulation for them to look angry, um, we start, of course, to question why this was the case, but we start to think that um, there might be difficulty for participants to differentiate between angry, uh, disgusted, or sad. Um, we'll come back to that in a bit, though. Um, and finally, of course, we performed a regression, and we added a few control variables, um, and we found the following. So you can see here that the neutral photos did not produce an effect. They almost did, but indeed, they crossed that dotted line, so they did not. And um, however, our results um, for H1 and H2, or I'm sorry, the angry, the angry photos did indeed produce a significant result, as you can see here. Uh, and those are going to support our first and second hypothesis. Um, that's actually all I've got here. Micah, I'm sure you have lots of things to add to this, because um, Micah has kind of taken a, a large role in uh, taking this research further. Yeah, no, you did a great, a great presentation. And uh, just one thing that I want to add is that in general, if we control for all the control variables, we see indeed that there's this really this effect of um, when we have the same manipulations for female and male politicians, that we see that um, the female politicians are perceived as more angry than male politicians. And uh, yeah, that's actually the main conclusion. But we have to do a third study to really replicate this and go into it a little bit further. And uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so do you guys have any questions? Um... Well, I'm first gonna give you a big compliment, uh, Dante. This was excellent. Uh, it's, uh, it's remarkable as an undergraduate student to give this uh, clear structured presentation on such an interesting topic. So I, I'm sure I speak on behalf of uh, the people listening uh, and on uh, Gijs and Maike to say that this was uh, excellent and well done. Um, so, um, I, I have a question for you. Um, in terms of other, like we know that people are sometimes not great at sort of detecting emotions, right? So do we, is it anger or is it anxiety or do people see disgust? You have other outcome variables that you, other emotions that you measured and do you find similar patterns or is it really just a pattern for anger and not for say things that people often relate closely related to that, like anxiety and disgust. Yeah, we just went ahead with the six basic emotions that we used initially. We didn't really delve deeper into um, like a, any further subset of emotions, but um, yeah, that might be have a place in future study. Um, indeed, it is difficult for people to really differentiate as we saw between anger and disgust, right? They, the facial features could end up and looking quite similar, even though someone is yeah angry or disgusted, 
So there's also just a bit of um, yeah, unclarity there. But uh, to add, yeah, it would also be interesting because now we only manipulated anger. We could also manipulate other emotions and see if there's a different uh, perception, maybe sadness, uh, maybe uh, if female politicians display, um, yeah, if they're crying, maybe they're perceived as way more emotional than male politicians. But yeah, we really focused on anger in this uh, project so far. In the absence of other questions, I, I have another question. Um, so, what you know, this is always the, the standard political science question in a seminar, but, but um, um, why is it important that we know about this finding and what, 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 is this, what does this teach us about, about the human psyche or the political dimensions of, 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 of sort of emotions? Um, well, what does this say? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could, you could draw the analysis here that, that what people see on television, what people see on social media, um, how politicians communicate with us is, is via media, right? So oftentimes you just see a politician, um, just a talking head. And uh, this research is important because perhaps the way in which one politician holds, holds their facial features or the way that they and um, um, yeah, hold their hold their mouth even can just influence uh, people's perception of of whether or not they they are legitimate or whether or not they have um, yeah something important to say. And of course, the the differences here between genders, um, the the sex differences, of course, major because we've been so used to seeing you know men as politicians and as women come onto you know come onto the political stage and take on positions of power, it's important to, to analyze whether or not there is a ingrained sex difference and whether or not we're biased towards seeing uh, women in a certain way. Uh, and of course, this has wide ranging implications for female politicians themselves. If, if this research is indeed, um, yeah, the way that we think it is, then we're able to see perhaps that women need to take on a different stance in politics in order to, to maintain respect and, and authority. So. And so now you've given uh, uh, people politicians that they don't know. Uh, what would happen in a more high information environment? Do you expect these effects to wash out, become stronger, stay the same? Um, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, just for the purposes of our own research, it was important to, to make sure that we had these um, clear kind of neutral no extra information, um, uh, pictures and, and conditions. And I think in the future studies we're going to, I think the idea is to add a bit more information uh, to see if this is also the case because right now, yeah, we're not able to really, to, to see what the, the results of that would be. I, I think of course that it's um, dependent on, on how you yourself are, are interpreting uh, a politician's message if you are, primed, for example, to find a certain female politician uh, as legitimate and, you know, uh, having certain authority and credibility, then, then um, you might already be primed to see her uh, expression in a certain way. But, but yeah, maybe, maybe a suggestion, uh, some of the work by Lasse Lautze has shown that, that they've started to vary the extent of dominant facial characteristics among sort of 
backbenchers and more prominent politicians and and they, they in their effect their, their effects wash out a little bit but that might be a design to have a look at for you, once you start varying the extent to which people are known um uh, that that would be a nice addition there's a question from Sanna van Ooster. Uh, hi Dante this is really impressive I was not able to do this as an undergrad I agree with that Sanna uh, I'm very curious uh, what underlying mechanisms you expect uh, behind your outcomes so why do you find what you find you've hinted at this a bit but I was wondering whether you can tell us a bit more about this Micah maybe you can touch a little yeah. bit yeah, sure. Yeah, I've been a little bit more uh, researching the literature as well. And um, so there's lots of work actually by Ursula Hess, who presented last week. And um, what she says is that although we have the facial features, like men have more facial features that are similar to anger, such as thick eyebrows or thicker nose and just more angry looking compared to women that are in general more baby face, which is more similar to happiness. That's what's in general the research among uh, around emotion perception finds. Um, what Ursula has also has shown is that it also, uh, besides facial features, it's also very important, um, yeah, our stereotypes, our expectations of dominance. So these can actually overrule these, uh, these facial features. And I, what I'm thinking is, especially with politicians, um, that if female politicians show anger, because uh, mostly women aren't, aren't supposed to be super angry. We are super sensitive to it. So then we pick up it maybe quick, quicker and more intensely. Whereas for male politicians, it's maybe more usual to show anger. Uh, so something maybe along those lines. But uh, yeah, we really have to, uh, we want to do a third study to also look more into this, uh, maybe even measure some stereotypes, uh, something like that. But yeah, that's, I think, a little bit to background, uh, especially from Hess, Ursula Hess's work how she would explain it, I think. Uh, there's a question from Isabella Ribasso. Thanks for this great presentation, awesome project. Maybe I missed this, but I was wondering if respondents knew that they were rating politicians. So is this an effect of people knowing that they're rating somebody in a position of power or is this effect, spe to sp uh, effect specific to politicians? Would you expect the same effects for female CEOs, for instance? If I remember correctly, and I'm not, I don't know about the first study, I, I can't remember that far back, but I'm, I'm pretty sure in this one, we did indeed prime them by saying this is, uh, we gave them a brief sentence saying, you know, something like view these politicians, um, delivering remarks after a, um, some sort of debate or something. So we did prime a little bit, uh, our participants. Yeah, we want to do that in the third study that we then um, have like a condition in which we say these are, yeah, people with other jobs, like normal people, not politicians, or maybe even also indeed uh, female or male uh, CEOs or uh, other dominant position and see if it's really like this politician effect. Uh, and also, yeah, the, the, the difference between a dominant position and a non-dominant position. And if this bias then changes. Um, yeah, that's very interesting, I think. Um, Sonna has a follow-up uh, regarding the low information context of the experiment, would it be ethically justified to alter the facial expressions of existing politicians and see how it would play out given a more high information environment than this low information experiment? That seems a question. What was the last part, Bert? Uh, sorry, uh, the, 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 compared to the low information environment. But for who was the question? 
from uh, from Maika maybe that given that you have actually started manipulating uh, some existing politicians yeah uh, <laughs> no so first of all um these pictures are also actual politicians in this study the um but the nice thing about these politicians is that uh, all the pictures are uh, taken from the same uh, angle, same photograph, same lighting, etc. And they have a license, a copyright license, which says that we are free to use them and also manipulate them or transform them in any way. So that's we're really uh, good with that. But um, yeah, in more high information settings, of course, it would be really cool to to be able to do that. But it's it's very hard because if you, for example, have uh, videos of speeches of politicians. Um, then you would have to alter, um, um, yeah, a moving face, uh, which is also talking. And uh, well, I've been trying to use deepfake, um, but deepfakes, it's, it's just, it's really developing. It's becoming more and more accurate, but it's very hard if you're not a computer scientist or have a really good computer with a good uh, video card. Uh, so it's definitely something that's cool to do. But it's it's more complicated, and especially for a sort of more controlled design, especially also if you want to sort of control the level of um, yeah, just the angle and um, the information, and just focus only on an emotion. It's quite complex, but definitely something interesting uh, to think about. To uh, to add one thing to that, the, the ethical component, we we, we oh, yeah. it's important to debrief people, obviously, at the the end of the survey, uh, that yeah. the 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 faces they've seen are from real politicians, but they've been manipulated. Yeah, and maybe also, I guess the other thing to add here, as somebody says who's in an ethics committee, is that you know, we're you're if you're manipulating smiles and frowns, these are things that politicians probably show uh, at times. So we're just gaining some causal control. It's not that we let them do or say things that are completely wrong. That's where deep fakes are a lot more tricky and where the debriefing needs to be a lot more powerful in a sense than the than than a yeah a controlled smile or angry. You know, with disgust it might start to maybe already you know, you, you might need to correct that a little stronger. Yeah, it's a good question, Sana. And an important one, right? To uh, to 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 deal with. Um, I don't. Ah, there's another question. Great, thanks, Isabella. Um, uh, adding two follow-ups here. Uh, you should. Uh, you could also consider manipulating position of power independently of profession. So politician, non-politicians. For instance, a local candidate of an opposition party is in politics, but arguably doesn't have too much power. That's the first suggestion. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> <See you> nodding. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good suggestion. That would be yeah. interesting. I think, yeah, yeah, I think we also talked about this doing or doing something similar like that. But um, yeah, indeed, that you still have the same position. So still politicians, but one has more dominance, uh, dominance and power than the other. So that's, yeah, I think that's uh, interesting. Also, maybe to note, that's why we decided to use the list of politicians that we did, because they were relatively obscure. I mean, I don't think anyone can name one single lord from, from the House of Lords. And we didn't use any super popular um, uh, MPs as well. So maybe for the future. Yeah. Uh, second uh, point from, uh, from Isabella. Uh, Isabella. Uh, as I understood, you had to choose pictures in which people aren't really smiling. Is it possible that female politicians who, despite strong social norms to smile, 
differ in significant ways from other female po politicians for inferences dominance? Uh, yeah, I can talk, uh, answer this one because I also helped uh, Izzy and I did most of these selections and it was very hard to find uh, neutral pictures indeed because a lot of these female politicians are smiling. These are portrait pictures, of course, so uh, it's quite normal to smile. Um, but I think we had more than 600 pictures and when I run them through face reader, only around 20 or 25 were selected as neutral. Um, but when we looked in, uh, in it more, we saw also some other, so face readers also not completely accurate. So we also found some other um, pictures, but it, yeah, it could be, it's like, uh, yeah, maybe uh, the, the, the female politicians who are not smiling are a have a particular look or there is something about them that could um, uh, yeah, make them different than female politicians who are smiling. Uh, yeah, Isabella and I also talked about this, we could, we, we thought we could maybe use um, these pictures of existing databases, um, not from politicians and saying this is a politician um, uh, and who's, who's looking neutral or angry um, or yeah, some other ways. But yeah, it is, it might be, a, it's, yeah, it's hard to find good neutral pictures for female politicians. So that's definitely one of the limitations here. But um, yeah, something we also want to look into whether they, yeah, their feature, facial features differ and their just general impression differ from other politicians or uh, normal non-politicians. Okay. Uh, I think uh, it's close to 4.30. Yeah. Um, let me, uh, Dante, give, me, give you one more compliment. I think also the way you handled the Q&A at a very professional level, uh, I think, uh, some of uh, us and other people uh, in, the, in, in academia can take an example of uh, answering uh, uh, questions in seminars uh, in such a kind and, uh, and, and to the point uh, manner. So uh, my big compliments and uh, hope to see more of you in the future, uh, either here in the lab or at other places where uh, life will bring you. Thank you again. And uh, also just wanna give a shout out to all of the uh, other people who worked on this project. So they're not here, but uh, they're, they're listening in the comments section. So thanks guys. Okay, and uh, with that, we've uh, come to the end of this uh, uh, mini conference. And uh, uh, I just want to end with um, <clears throat> announcing our schedule for the next few weeks, and, uh, where all of you are, of course, welcome to join us again. Again, Friday from three to four. Uh, next meeting is December 4 with Marike van der Velde with joint work with uh, Maurits Meyers on um, uh, compromises uh, uh, between uh, political parties and coalition formation. And the week after that, Patrick Stewart, December 11, again, three to four, uh, his, uh, 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 his talk is titled Facing Farage Using the Combinational Processing Model of Emotion to Understand UK and US Citizen Appraisal of Immigration Arguments. Um, and then uh, uh, the week after that, we have a... Um, uh, uh, another graduate Friday with uh, two talks, uh, one uh, by uh, Michael Homan on facial mimicry. And uh, the, the second one, um, actually, I, don't, I, I again don't see it on the, on, on the website. <laughs> we had this. So there's this weird thing that I don't see this talk on the website, but others do. So, but I think, what's his name, Bert, the other speaker? Uh, uh, John uh, Singh is John. from Temple University. Yes. It is happening. 
it is yes, not. Yes, it is happening. So if you don't see it on the website, there is actually a meeting on the 18th. This is a really weird thing. Um, and then, uh, of course, uh, we're, we'll be meeting lots of times also in next year, uh, in 2021. And uh, Bert and I are uh, uh, producing uh, the schedule. We're, we're hoping to launch it uh, uh, next week. Um, and I think uh, uh, we'll uh, it will have an exciting uh, uh, um, schedule for you with uh, talks, for example, by Yif uh, uh, Lelkus. Uh, I think that's the first one. Uh, yes. I'm just opening the document. Uh, it's a bit slow. Yeah, Yif uh, Lelkus, the first one on, on January 8th. Ursula Duxiker from University of Amsterdam, the 15th. Uh, Leor Schmisgrot from Cambridge. Uh, and then again, uh, a graduate uh, Friday with uh, Tristan Klingelhover and Lynn Andrea Fick. Uh, but many more speakers. I see Jana Krupnikov, Michael Brudner, uh, Gerben van Kleef, uh, Diamantis Petropoulos Pitalas, Teresa Kuhn, Cameron Brick. Uh, and I will hope to confirm uh, two more speakers uh, this week. Uh, so that's uh, that's it for today. Uh, I want to thank you all for listening and uh, hope to see you uh, next week.